From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, we remember two of the people killed in the mass shooting in Colorado Springs. Daniel Aston and Derek Rump were considered the heart of Club Q. And when we say that, they, they weren't just the only ones, but they lived it. They understood it. They had the passion. Those two loved what they did. They loved this community. Then, it's well known that the pandemic added new mental health challenges for people. That includes eating disorders. These folks don't necessarily present as thin, so some of them um, may look, quote, normal, so they might have a, a fairly average body weight. And for these people, it is very hard for their eating disorders to be recognized as problematic because dieting, food restriction, weight loss is such a normalized thing in society. We are so grateful to our members, donors, and sponsors. You are such an important part of the work we do here every day. CPR News, CPR Classical, Indy 1023, Denverite, and KRCC in Southern Colorado wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio family. And on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Shonda Thomas-Whitfield. Daniel Aston and Derek Rump are being remembered as the heart of Club Q. They were both bartenders working at the LGBTQ club in Colorado Springs on the night of the attack. They were among the five people killed in the mass shooting last month. All of these stories we keep hearing about, you know, Club Q changed my life and it saved my life and, and became who I was. It's, it's a spirit. It's an energy that lives within you. It's a community. It's not just a bar. It's not just a building. It's not just a business for us. It's not just a job for the employees there. Derek and Daniel were so passionate. Daniel and Derek were Club Q. And when we say that, they, they weren't just the only ones, but they lived it. They understood it. They had the passion. They... They stood up for that building. They said, this community cannot lose this. That's a beautiful part of this story. Even though it doesn't have the best ending, those two loved what they did. They loved this community. That is one of Club Q's co-owners, Nick Grzecka. Ed Sanders was friends with Derek Rump and Daniel Aston. He was shot in the back and the leg during the attack, but survived. He might be able to go home from the hospital as soon as today. He's known Derek Rump for more than 10 years. He was just a good guy, a great bartender. He always looked out for me. He would, at the end of the night, he would make my drinks a little weaker so I could last longer. And, uh... He just looked out for me in all all kinds of ways. He gave me rides home, and he yeah. uh, he even paid for an Uber for me one time, and he called me Mr. Ed. <laughs> That's what sticks out in my mind, his kindness towards me always. And... Uh, all the bartenders there were like that, though, but Derek seemed to stand out more as far as his uh, care of people. He could be sassy and 
a little bit uh, of an attitude sometimes when people gave that to him, that uh, he was just a wonderful person. I don't know how else to say it. Ed Sanders, remembering his friend Derek Crump, he also knew Daniel Aston. Well, Daniel, of course, he was just a light. When he came into the room, his smile was contagious. And uh, he was such a, a resource for trans people. He uh, always had a listening ear for trans people. I, I remember that. I only knew him for a couple of years. I remember the day he started. He was so cute had that blonde hair and that smile. I just know that he he took right to the club and fit right in. Uh, this was a wonderful experience knowing him. Again, that is Ed Sanders, who survived the attack at Club Q. He may get home from the hospital today after being shot in the back and leg. He's helping us remember Derek Rump and Daniel Aston. Both died while working as bartenders and performers at the LGBTQ club. Derek was laid to rest on Monday in Pennsylvania, where he grew up. Daniel was remembered Wednesday in Colorado Springs. Here's his boyfriend, Wyatt Kent. He was a soul as beautiful as a rare sapphire, and Daniel had the most unique way of looking at the world around him. We often went on hikes together, enjoying the sunshine. We'd wake up and say, you know, it's a beautiful day. We should probably go out and go for a hike. (laughs) And he was always upset when we never got around to it. And we would talk drama over the bar, just catch up, or talk about other people, or talk about ourselves. But oftentimes, we would catch each other just silently staring at the sky or at small things around us. I remember we passed a purple aster on the rock, and, uh, and I said, look, there's an aster. And he said, aster, that's so close to my last name, Aston. And he crouched down with his phone, and he took a picture of it. He always had those ways of appreciating small things. He also had an incredible and unique way of words. He was a poet in the truest and most literal sense of the word an appreciator of life, of all small things, a lover of everything and all. Aston's sister-in-law, Kate Tiger, read from a poem Daniel wrote. This poem that he wrote, soft, I may always be a lover poem, but that is just the way these things go. I'm soft and I will always be soft. This world will never tame me. This world will never make me hard. So much in this world is designed to make us hard. I want so badly to hate the person who stole Daniel from us, but I can't really. I hate the system that created them. And the irony is that Daniel dedicated his life to fighting against that system. I think the softness that he wrote about in that poem was love and compassion in spite of terrible things in the world. It was about keeping your heart open. Since I've known him, Daniel has been on a journey of self-discovery. He did the work, and he came to know his truth. He was brave enough to live that. 
And that is such a powerful lesson. So I know that I will honor him by continuing to advocate for people living their truths and raising my kids to be compassionate and loving and accepting people. People I know that he would be proud of. Remembering Daniel Aston and Derek Rump, two of the five people killed in Club Q last month in Colorado Springs. You may find more reflections on our website at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. For a few hours in April 1902, child welfare was on the minds of Colorado lawmakers, specifically one child's welfare, because someone left a baby inside the state capitol. Hundreds passed through the Capitol every day of the week, but that Sunday, a woman dressed in black was indifferent to the imposing structure. Instead, while people filed by, she sat in the rotunda, feeding a week's-old baby girl. When no one was watching, she bundled her up, tucked her into a nook, and slipped out the west doors. The baby began crying and was found a while later. She had violet eyes and was wrapped in a blue shawl and pink cloak. Nothing else was known, and so they called her Capitola. Within days, a local doctor had found the baby girl a new home, but that's all he would say, and that her new family named her something other than Capitola. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with support from Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. It's well known that the pandemic added new mental health challenges for people, and that includes eating disorders. Doctors who treat conditions like anorexia say the increase in numbers even surprised them. The isolation and lack of structure created a perfect storm, says Dr. Elizabeth Wassenaar. With all this free time, a number of people thought, well, what a great time to start getting healthy. So we saw a lot of people start to exercise when maybe they didn't have time because before they were sitting in a car commuting and families were working out together, which actually is a fantastic thing. Uh, But for some people, you know, dieting and exercise became excessive during the pandemic and that exacerbated their vulnerability to an eating disorder. Wassenaar is the medical director at the Eating Recovery Center of the Mountain and West region. She says the COVID pandemic contributed to other triggers. Early in the pandemic, we had shortages of food. There were grocery stores that were running out of things and supply chain remains an issue. We know that food insecurity is a major vulnerability factor for eating disorders and especially binge eating disorder. Wassenaar says there were more patients in need of treatment who were acutely ill and the center was able to stay open during the worst of COVID and has since added 59 more child and adolescent beds in Denver. The Eating Recovery Center draws patients from around the world. One former patient, Anna Zaleski, who lives in Michigan, went through the treatment twice. She says she has always been a perfectionist and a high achiever and often feels anxious. Her two treatments were before the pandemic. The second one stuck and she got better. Zaleski says she's not sure how she could have fared if she struggled with an eating disorder during COVID, especially given her job as an ER nurse. Because we were faced with very difficult, high stress situations that I, I truly don't think that I would have been able to handle had I been in that like wary phase of am I well or am I going to relapse again? I don't think that 
that would have gone well for me. And I am multiple times I remember thinking like, I am just so thankful for my recovery and that I am healthy. Zaleski says it also points to how terrible the illness can be mentally and physically. She says on occasion, she'll reach out to patients admitted to the ER with an eating disorder. There was a situation last year where there was somebody and her family member that were in the department. And I struggle with, do you share your story or do you not in like the professional setting? And at that particular time, it felt appropriate um, because there were a lot of connections. And I think it provided, if anything, the family member with a lot of hope, which I think is very important. Um, This individual was pretty sick. And even when I was very sick, you don't, you know, you kind of tune out everything um, in terms of hearing like stories of recovery and stories of hope. But I know that for my parents at the time, that would have been really impactful for them. There's this image of someone with anorexia nervosa being extremely thin, sometimes skeletal looking. Anna Zaleski says she got dangerously thin, but as our next guest will explain, people with anorexia come in all shapes and sizes. Erin Harrop researches people with atypical anorexia, that is, larger-bodied people who suffer from many of the same emotional and physical challenges as those with more conventional anorexia. Harrop is with the Graduate School of Social Work at the University of Denver. Harrop spoke with my colleague, Andrea Dukakis. Erin, welcome. Thanks for having me here. You study anorexia. I also know you have your own personal experience with it. Can you talk about how it developed and when you or someone else recognized it? Yeah, I think in my own personal story, my anorexia started fairly young. So I started changing the foods that I was eating and restricting foods and exercising more compulsively in my childhood, um, kind of mimicking some of the diet behaviors that I saw around me. But it wasn't until I was 15 years old that it was recognized kind of by my friends and family and diagnosed. So someone else recognized it. You didn't really recognize that this was an issue. Yeah, I didn't think I was thin enough for it to be a problem. Um, And it was my friends and my family that noticed something was wrong. And you say you were mimicking behaviors around you. What exactly do you mean? Um, So I had a lot of adults in my life who were dieting and cutting out different foods. And so I started by kind of in the 90s with the non-fat craze, like taking out things that had fat and then generally just got fewer and fewer foods that I felt comfortable or safe eating. Um, And similarly with exercise, I'd received a lot of messages growing up that it's so important to exercise and be active. And um, I definitely took that to an extreme as well. And once people recognized it, did you go through treatment? Um, So at the time, my family did not have health insurance and we did not have mental health parity. So this was kind of um, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, And so I kind of had a hobbled together treatment plan. I worked with my pediatrician. Um, and saw a couple therapists and dietitians, but none of them were eating disorder specialists. And so I kind of had a kind of sub-threshold eating disorder, basically, for many, many years until I was able to get treatment in 2006. And hence, this is your life's work as well. Absolutely. From as young as high school, I remember thinking, like, I want to change how we do eating disorder treatment, and I want to make it so that kids like me, families like my family can actually access treatment, especially when they know there's a problem, but hopefully even 
like before I had my eating disorder for a long time before it was diagnosed. One of the things that you study is something called atypical anorexia. Can you give me a profile of someone who is dealing with that? Yeah, so atypical anorexia looks exactly like um, what we call typical anorexia nervosa. So it's somebody who is restricting the foods that they eat. They're very obsessed um, with the types of foods. They have a very limited number of foods that they feel as if they can eat. They usually lose weight fairly rapidly in the beginning. And then all of their kind of time, energy, thought process is wrapped up around food and body weight. But with atypical anorexia, these folks don't necessarily present as thin. So some of them um, may look, quote, normal. So they might have a, a fairly average body weight. And some people are in higher body weights or they might present as uh, what we would call fat. Um, and for these people, it is very hard for their eating disorders to be recognized as problematic because dieting, food restriction, weight loss is such a normalized thing in society. And what about the health effects? We hear about people with traditional anorexia uh, having some severe health effects, some dying from anorexia. Um, for this group that we call atypical anorexia, what are the health effects for that? So in the research that we have so far, which is, I would say, still emerging, the what we know is that the serious medical side effects of anorexia, so things like hypothermia, um, the cardiac symptoms, uh, low blood pressure, orthostasis, which is your body's ability to kind of regulate its own blood pressure, and then other things related to electrolyte imbalance and that kind of thing, those occur at the same rates as typical anorexia. So we kind of see atypical anorexia as similarly deadly. In some of the other physical consequences, so things related to like losing your period, bone loss, some of the kind of more long-term things, the research kind of shows that in a stepwise trajectory where people with atypical anorexia are impaired compared to normal folks who are healthy, but they are not presenting as quite as severe as folks with typical anorexia. So in general, it's just as life-threatening in terms of those medical consequences. And again, I think as we get more research on it, we'll be able to tell a little bit more what some of those differences might actually be. Can you talk about how someone's thinking, someone's mental state might lead them to restrict their eating? I think especially right now in a culture that tends to be very image focused, if you think about kind of social media, Instagram, like many of these things that we have going on, how you look and how you present is highly valued in our society. And so for someone with anorexia, while it's not always just about looking a certain way, there is a commonality in that your sense of self-worth feels really tied to how you appear. And also in our culture, there's a high emphasis on health. And so with so much going around about the type of diet we should eat, the type of exercise we should get, um, folks who end up with eating disorders often kind of have a, a black and white or more perfectionistic thinking that leads them to take some of these thoughts to the extreme. And in terms of being incited, I would say that it can be very isolating and you can get really fixated on certain things and, and truly believe that eating food will harm you or will make you a less valuable person. I interviewed a woman who studied anorexia and she said that often people put pressure on others to lose weight and the euphemism is you should be eating healthily. Yeah, there's something called, I don't know if you've heard the term concern trolling. 
that's a, a term that I hear often in our kind of fatter communities or body com- positive communities. And this is when well-meaning people who have in their mind that being at a higher weight is un- inherently unhealthy, even if there's no other side effects or associated health risks, folks will tell people, you know, I'm concerned about your health. You need to watch what you're eating. And often, especially for children, those types of messages get internalized. um, And that, you know, especially in the case of atypical anorexia, often results in children starting to diet, starting to restrict. And that can be the gateway to an eating disorder. And it's not necessarily the case, and this is really important, that larger bodied people are less healthy than smaller bodied people. Absolutely. So um, some of the best research that we have on this from the NHANES study, which is a giant nationally representative study, shows that a significant portion of people in the overweight, obese, and the kind of most severe body weight categories of obesity are still metabolically healthy. And similarly, if you look at folks in the normal weight categories, they are often metabolically unhealthy. And so body weight just as a measure is just a very rough rubric for where someone's health might be. And so we really can't tell a lot about someone's health behaviors just by like eyeballing them and thinking like how attractive we think their body weight is. If if we want to know about someone's health, we need to ask them about their health behaviors, run labs, take some measurements, um, and then proceed to make recommendations for what health behaviors might be best for that individual. Now, anecdotally, I have heard from people who are larger bodied that a doctor might not necessarily know that, or they might tell someone to lose weight, even if that person is healthy. Absolutely. I think right now in our medical training, we are, from my point of view as a weight science scholar, um, we are years behind where we could be, and weight stigma is still something that's kind of driving many of our patient-provider interactions. And I, I would say from the people that I've interviewed in my research, that is generally the case that providers are recommending weight loss before screening for an eating disorder, before screening for a history of an eating disorder, before even sometimes asking the person how they eat or how they exercise. There's just often a a blanket recommendation for weight loss and to reduce the amount eaten before they even know what the actual situation is. What does treatment look like right now for folks who have eating disorders, anorexia? Um, it looks a lot of different ways. Usually it involves kind of a, what we call multidisciplinary team. So having a physician, a dietitian, a therapist, and then sometimes other adjunctive therapies with it. And then as the medical complications get more involved, you might see higher levels of care. So you could see things like intensive outpatient, partial hospitalization, or full hospitalization or residential programs for people who need kind of 24-hour support to help them manage their behaviors and their health conditions. Is there access, though, for folks who can't afford it? You mentioned that you didn't have health insurance when you were diagnosed. What kind of access is there for folks that don't have the resources to pay for it? So it is very difficult right now. I think you would hear from people um, who are either lower income, have uh, low health insurance or no health insurance if they're undercovered, and people from more marginalized groups in society. It's just, it's very hard to access this treatment. And oftentimes, even for people who do have insurance, if they're in a larger body or if their um, insurance is kind of less concerned about their diagnosis, often folks go undertreated, which means they leave treatment too early, and then they are stuck either readmitting, so having to start a treatment process again, or just trying to, like, 
make it work on their own. I've known people who have gone to live with friends to try and get treatment with friends. I've known people who try and do things like online support groups um, that are free and accessible. So as much as the eating disorders community is trying to make treatment more accessible, I would say that this is one of the major challenges facing our field, particularly for people who are not thin, young, white women. How do you reverse that? How do you get treatment to more people who need it? You know, um, one of the things that I believe would help would be things like taking the weight requirement away from uh, anorexia nervosa and just making it a behavioral and medical diagnosis so that when someone has these behaviors, has these medical consequences, they qualify for that diagnosis. Currently, we have kind of an arbitrary weight threshold and insurance companies can look at that and say, oh, well, this person is at a BMI of this, and we want them to be at a BMI of this, right? And so essentially what that tells patients is go home and get sicker and then come back to us. Another thing is uh, we just have kind of a minimum number of providers who are trained to be specialists in eating disorders, and many general care physicians and therapists are afraid or don't specialize enough. So I think increasing the training that we have kind of in our medical schools, in our therapy, dietetic schools, and then getting treatment that's more accessible in general that a mom can go to when they have kids, that an older adult can go to when they're still working, those types of things. It's just often not feasible for someone to be able to take off three months (laughs) to go to residential treatment when they have an eating disorder. And there is a lack also with general mental health care and inpatient care as well. So this isn't just with the eating disorders. uh, Absolutely. We are often kind of triaging people at their most severe. And at least for eating disorders, by the time we get to that very, very severe place, um, they can be very stubborn and difficult to treat, not the patients, although I've definitely been my share of stubborn in my day. Um, But uh, the eating disorder can get very intractable. So we know that early intervention is key. A starved brain is really hard to treat in terms of therapy because the building blocks are just not there. And so um, getting early treatment sooner is really imperative. We talk about stigmas in society, mental health stigmas, you know, marginalized groups. And we've talked a lot about you know, atypical anorexia involves folks who are larger bodied. How far has society come and how far does it need to go to recognize that this is a stigma that needs to go away? Um, you know, I, th- I think with when it comes to weight stigma, um, we are still at the very early stages. We're still at a place where it is socially acceptable to make fun of someone's weight, to make fun of what a fat person might eat, to believe that a fat person would be a less valuable employee, political candidate, teacher, those types of things. So I think we are we still see huge disparities in terms of pay, wages, health care access, education access social networks and friends, dating, those types of things, all of those things are impacted by weight stigma. And I would say that our awareness of it is getting slightly better, but sometimes it just results in a rebranding of stigma. So we need to help fat people care about their health so that we can reduce our costs in society, things like that, as opposed to actually caring about the fat person and believing that all people, regardless of how healthy, how large you are, how able-bodied, deserve to be fully engaged citizens with access to full rights. We talk a lot about language in society and how we use language. And you use the word fat, 
Some people use the word larger bodied. How do you feel about the terminology around this? Yeah, so I am using the term fat here in the fat liberation uh, sense of the word. So just as some minoritized groups have reclaimed other words like queer or Chicana, the fat folks are beginning to try and reclaim that word as well as a neutral descriptor. Yes, my body is larger. Yes, it has more fat. I will call myself fat. I would say that's not universally accepted within the fat community. Um, Other words that I love to use are things like larger bodied or higher weight, things that put a label on it, but words like obese or overweight, especially words like morbidly obese, all of those are words that have been kind of universally in the fat community kind of condemned as very stigmatizing and pathologizing. So um, that's why you won't hear me use those words unless I'm specifically referencing like a medical study that is using that kind of framework. Erin, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Erin Harrop is an assistant professor in the School of Social Work at the University of Denver. She spoke with Andrea Dukakis about atypical anorexia. A study released last month in JAMA Pediatrics notes that there has been a, quote, significant increase in both inpatient and outpatient eating disorder treatment since the onset of COVID-19. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Your old or unwanted car still has value. Donate it to Colorado Public Radio. We'll help free up some space in your garage or driveway, and you'll help CPR bring the programs you value to listeners across the state. Any make, any condition, we'll take it. Start the safe and easy car donation process and find answers to your donation questions at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. A three-day celebration of Latino culture, power, and history took place earlier this year in Aspen. And the Aspen part is important. Monica Ramirez and her collaborators designed the Rosado Festival to broadly change the way people see and think about Latinx people. They plan to bring the festival back next year. Welcome to the show, Monica. Thank you so much. I've heard your team describe this event as an Aspen Ideas Festival for Latinx people. Why did you feel this event needed to take place in Aspen? Well, you know, Aspen is considered such an important place for thought leaders and change makers to convene. The Ideas Festival is exactly an example of just that, that brings together folks from all over the country and and in sometimes different parts of the world to talk about how they're innovating and, and the ways that they're leading And for us, it was really important to make sure that we are positioning the Latinx community in the same way. And in Aspen, as a location, it was significant because there are so many Latine, Latinx people who support and have built up the community that is Aspen, but they're not often thought of as innovators and change makers as they should be. Speaking of Aspen, Aspen definitely has a reputation as a place that caters to a more affluent white crowd. But you describe it as a place that has been built and sustained by Latinx people. Please expand on that. I mean, that's true, you know, and I think there are lots of communities around the country that are affluent, that wouldn't be able to run, wouldn't be able to operate, and would not be able to prosper without the many low-paid workers who are uh, the cooks in the kitchens of some of those Mm. restaurants, the hotel workers, the groundskeepers, 
the people who are working the registration desks at the hotels that people come to visit. And Aspen has the same community of workers. Um, thousands of workers are there either on a seasonal basis or throughout the year. And they are the ones who make it possible for the businesses that cater to the affluent community members to even be able to exist and operate. And you speak of it, basically you're saying the Latin culture is deeply rooted in Aspen because of these contributions. And in fact, the name Rosado literally means deeply rooted. So pretty cool connection there. (laughs) Thanks. Well, yeah, and we're deeply rooted in Colorado. I mean, that's another significant reason we chose Colorado, not just Aspen, but the Latinx community has been in Colorado. Colorado, you know, at one time was part of Mexico. And so it's important for people to remember that our community has always been there, has always been part of building Colorado into an important state in this country. And I think that sometimes people forget that. And so it's an important reminder that we've always been there. We've always been contributing. And in Aspen in particular, that's a place that we have helped to thrive in the way that it does today. How have the Latinx people you've met in town, including, as you mentioned, people working at the festival and working in the community, how have they reacted to you and the festival in general? You know, the community has been so loving and so welcoming, you know, from the time that we started putting together our local host committee until the execution and even after the festival, people have just been really grateful that we decided to do the festival in Aspen, that we've engaged them deeply in the planning. It wasn't just that we invited people to attend who are from around the Roaring Fork Valley. We They were important partners in building the festival and making mm. um, the festival even possible. So, um, you know, during the three days of the festival, I had so many local community members come up to me, some of them with tears in their eyes, crying about how, you know, their family members at one time cleaned the hotels or tended to the grounds where we were holding the festival and how important it was for them to be able to show up as leaders in the community who are fully embraced and reminded of just how much they belong there. Now, sometimes the workers, you talked about that earlier, the workers who are setting up, who are working in all these places, often feel invisible uh, mm-hmm. particularly in a you know affluent place like Aspen. So do you feel that they have felt welcomed and, and seen? Definitely. And, you know, I actually had someone when we were planning the festival say to me, we support all of the festivals that happen here and we're never invited. So being invited to be leaders at the festival was significant. And, you know, it was so beautiful. You know, as I stood on the stage and I looked out at the crowd and I saw you know, community members, some of the hotel workers and and others who came after work to come to our opening ceremony, to see them in the crowd singing the songs that were being sung by Lupita Nefante. And, you know, they were taking their own selfies by the signs. And they talked about how they don't remember a time when there were so many Latina people in Aspen at the same time. And it was a real source of pride and joy. I definitely think they felt seen and heard. So the Rosado Festival had panels on reproductive health, closing the wealth gap, among other topics. Let's listen to an excerpt of a panel you held about disinformation and what the media in particular can do to combat it. And let's set this up. The panelists are journalists Russell Contreras from Axios, Maria Alina Salinas from ABC News, and Susan Gamboa from NBC Latino. First, 
you'll hear the moderator, Felipe Estefan, from a foundation called Luminate. To start, I, I think I'm going to say something that is perhaps obvious for most of you, but it's that misinformation and disinformation are spreading at very urgent rates. Um, raise your hand if you're in some family, and by family I mean Latino family, tia, abuelo, abuelito, primo, text chain, WhatsApp chain with your family, raise your hand. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about when your like, crazy uncle starts sending you some message about the CIA and the COVID vaccine and that, you know, that kind of stuff. So that, that, that's what we're talking about here. And I think, all, all joking aside, I think it's important to mention a couple things. One is that this and misinformation knows no borders. I think one of the things that has shocked me the most, being Colombian but living here in the United States, is seeing the exact same memes, the exact same messaging lines that are being used in US elections in the most recent presidential election in Colombia. Some of the exact same racist attacks, sexist attacks against women candidates were the very attacks that the now Vice President of Colombia, Francia Marquez, was facing exactly the same images, exactly the same mechanism to spread this information in an articulated and sophisticated manner. And I think the other one that it is important to highlight as we enter this conversation is that this information has a very real impact in our communities. Let me be as clear as I can possibly be. Disinformation kills. Disinformation is killing our democracy. Disinformation is killing our communities. And just think about the person that didn't get that COVID vaccine because of vaccine disinformation. And Russell, how are you seeing it in terms of the coverage that, that you're doing from Axios' point? Well, interesting, we saw uh, through our reporting in 2020, when we asked Latinos, or we investigated, where did they get their information from for political coverage? We found that a large portion of Latinos got their political information from YouTube. They went to YouTube, they were searching for information, and granted, it's not probably people in this newsroom. It's your tío who works at the mechanic shop, it's your prima who works at the salon, those who you've been telling to go vote all these years are now finally to go vote, and they're looking for information. Why are they going to YouTube? Well, they don't see us in mainstream media. They're looking for voices that speak to them. And if they go to a lot of the cable opinion channels or they go to news sites, they don't see their voices. There are no Latino columnists at major newspapers. There are no Mexican-American columnists at the New York Times or the Washington Post. So it opens up a venue to go to YouTube. And the most viewed video of the YouTube 2020 campaign was a video from the Trump campaign, very simple, had MMA fire Jorge Masvidal, basically give a speech and make fun of Joe Biden dancing to Despacito. It was everywhere. But if you watch that video, it was the most viewed video of the campaign. You got algorithms pointing you to other misinformation about vaccines, about the upcoming uh, allegations that there was election fraud, about the immigrants coming from, the migrants coming from Central America are connected to MS-13, a number of information. So it existed. <laughs> Let's get into solutions. Um, Maria Elena, let me start with you. What do you think people should be doing or media should be doing or social media companies should be doing, philanthropy should be doing? Choose whichever one you want and let's just open up for a round of, of what do we need to be doing about this. Well, I think social media companies are already trying to, or at least the government is trying to have more oversight over what they do. But I think one thing that we can do 
even as journalists, is start with our own group, with our own surrounding, uh, with our family members, with our friends, and make sure that we tell them, you know, what the facts are. We make sure that we call out things. Like my, my sister would tell me, did you see this? Where did you see that? On Facebook. I said, yeah, but what was the source? Facebook. I said, Facebook is not a media. What was the source? Facebook. They, somebody posted something on Facebook. What was the source that, post, that posted it? And she says, oh, I don't know. You know, she doesn't understand. So we have to start with our, with our family members, with the people that surround us. Um, and then another thing, I know, Susanne, you were saying a lot of this misinformation is race-based. We have to accept as a community that we are racist and that there is a lot of racism in the Latino community. I mean, and we deny it, but a lot of, the, of our beliefs come from that. And you know, I see it with my family, I see it with my friends, I see it with things that I hear. Uh, so that's one of the things that we have to begin to, number one, accept that we are and look for ways to explain to people, no, it's not that way. No, it's not this way. I have a friend who was saying, oh, that Black Lives Matter movement, they're all communists. And I said, well, are you kidding me? She says, yeah, because they took a picture with Maduro. And, and I said, who took a picture? Those ladies that founded you know, the, the Black Lives Matter. I said, okay, fine. Just because you took a picture with someone, number one, doesn't mean that they're socialists. And maybe if they are, you have to differentiate the movement from the organization. Say, oh, no, 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 no. The movement organization, same thing. You cannot separate them. I mean, there's absolutely no way that you can convince someone who, who believes what they want to believe. And that's, I think, the biggest challenge because we are in the era of people believing what they want to believe, going to the media outlets that tell them what they want to hear. And that is very difficult to combat. Suzanne, can I come to you? What can we do? What should we do? And then I'll, I'll come next to you, Russell. Listen, this is a hard question for me to answer because I'm not an advocate. I'm a journalist, right? Telemundo is doing what I think is a neat thing. When they write their stories, um, some of them, they say, okay, at the bottom, they say, here's where you could go get information about this. And they talk to their readers as consumers. They provide phone numbers. For some reason, a lot of us in the journalism field, a lot of journalism entities are unwilling to do this. They don't want to be a a source of information, like news you can use kind of information. A conduit, basically. Yeah, and I don't know why that is. Um, Telemundo is also doing a thing, a crash course with MediaWise and Pointer called um, Identifying Misleading Information. A good thing to, to check out. Um, and also, I think there needs to be funding in um, news literacy programs, uh, which are often local. I think a lot of this stuff has to go to the local level, because you, you all know what's happening at the local level. And at some point, you know, maybe even we as journalists, I, I know there are town halls, it's great to get tons of people, but maybe it needs to start at, the, at, at a little neighborhood level and go from there. And I would point yeah. out, there is a big difference between telling lies about the past and the present and being delusional about the present and the future, right? There's different intents. One is to hurt and persuade you, and one is you're not being honest about what needs to be done. And, and there is a difference between freedom of speech and freedom of reach, which I think is what a lot of people are debating over what the extent of the technology companies have. And you also have to think about laws that exist today, like um, uh, legal liability for tech uh, companies. You know, uh, that Facebook thing that I told you, Facebook can, can uh, generate that kind of content and suggest people get white supremacist news, but have no legal liability for suggesting they join or anything like that for spreading that kind of content. So there are efforts to try and change and update laws that govern technology that if people are really concerned about this, 
whether you're an advocate or just your everyday person, this is who you need to con contact your congressman, um, you know, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus or your local people about to try to have some movement on that. And also has to do with, uh, also there's uh, laws on um, monopolies, on Facebook and Google being the place where advertisers who pay for our content, for me to be able to put out a story about the census director being a Chicano, um, go, they have to go through Facebook and Google and, and those are the only people they have to, to put out ad revenue. So there's all kinds of, there are laws on that that you really should look into. The regulatory framework right now is insufficient. Laws from the 60s and 70s about regulation of media and technology are not enough to hold the social media companies accountable and to speak truth to power. We have to speak truth to power of those who are dominating and controlling the public sphere of information. We have to do more media literacy, more investment, and philanthropy, and I say this as someone who works in a philanthropic organization, we have to commit more resources to digital and media literacy for the Latinx community. And finally, we have to shift the narratives that are allowing this and misinformation to really flourish, and we have to shift the narratives about our community in very proactive ways. Narratives don't die. They just get replaced. So we have to be thinking about the ways in which we both call out injustice while also creating space for imagining a more inclusive uh, world and democracy where we belong and where we're empowered to drive the decisions that impact our lives. That was an excerpt from the Risado Festival and a panel on disinformation in Latino communities. We're talking with the festival's co-founder, Monica Ramirez. I want to read back to you something you said before the festival about the biggest thing you wanted to achieve. You said in an online interview, quote, there's a false narrative in this country that we are takers, that we take jobs, resources, benefits, opportunities. The narrative needs to change to reflect who we truly are, which is that we give. We give our culture, jobs, opportunities, ideas. I hope that coming out of this festival, people understand all the ways that we give. Do you think you achieved that in your few days in Aspen? I definitely believe that we opened people's eyes to some leaders and to some changes that we have been directly responsible for. And I think that there's a new framing, right? You know, everyone who attended our festival was a leader, is a leader in our community, whether they were farm worker women who traveled to attend or domestic workers or some of the biggest business leaders, they were all leaders. And I think that that's probably one of the best outcomes of this festival is we help to reframe the conversation about who is leading in our country and how many of those Latinx leaders have always been making important contributions. I think that we did at least crack the door a bit when it comes to that particular topic. Now, part of the giving is the culture. You celebrated mm -hmm. culture from throughout Latin America when you were in Aspen. As That's you right. look back, what was the highlight for you? I mean, I loved everything so much. And of course, I am biased because I created it. But for <laughs> me, the most, like, one of the most powerful moments was when I got on stage to do the welcome and just looking out at the crowd and seeing, first of all, that everyone came Right. And when you're building something like this, it's never been built before. You know, there's that moment of fear when you're like, are people going to actually show up for this? Thing? <laughs> and so like looking out and seeing that, like they came and there was so much love and so much joy. 
that for me was one of the best moments of the festival. And then of course we had the opportunity to be in deep conversation and celebration. And then there was the part of our festival where we were honoring those in our community that have passed away. The thousands Mm. of people who died from COVID, people who died because of gun violence. And that was also a very special moment. It was a very sad, very somber moment, but it was also beautiful. Monica, thank you. Thank you. Monica Ramirez co-founded the Risado Festival, a celebration and exploration of Latinx culture in Aspen. We spoke in September. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Get the gear to spread the cheer this time of year and support the public radio service you hold dear. The CPR Shop, now open for all the Colorado public radio fans on your gift-giving list. Hats, t-shirts, a winter scarf, and would it be a public radio shop without a coffee mug? Come to shop.cpr.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The producers of a popular immersive exhibit featured the work of Van Gogh, are presenting a reimagined version of a beloved family holiday classic. CPR's Eaton Lane takes us along for the immersive Nutcracker. Each holiday season, families around the world seek out the Nutcracker to celebrate the holidays. Now, selections from the Tchaikovsky Ballet, including the March of the Toys and the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, are helping to bring the age-old Christmas story to life in an immersive show. Producer Svetlana Dvoretsky says the concept was in response to ballet company pandemic shutdowns and restrictions. We were able to operate because we can control the space and the environment and and the distance between people. And we were able to create a really, really safe environment in our galleries. And we thought that there's, there's really almost no offerings for our little friends. Craig Northrup is the assistant event manager at Lighthouse Immersive Denver, which is hosting the exhibit. He says the key for families to get the most out of this immersive nutcracker is an open mind. Um, Come with the expectation that you're going to see this in a 360 scope and that it's going to move and it's going to twirl and it's going to be here for adults and for kids alike. And everyone can enjoy this event. Come with the open mind about the retelling of it, I say, and uh, be excited. Be excited to, to be a part of it. Northrop says parents should take advantage of the opportunity to dress their children and themselves up, but they should wear active footwear since kids will want to run, jump, and explore. Yes, wear those costumes. Um, bring that, that, that Christmas spirit that, that, that you know your kid wants to you know, express themselves in in this gallery. But yes, definitely wear tennis shoes. In a personal view, it's a journey that we want all kids to feel like they can imagine and be a part of, no matter the color, no matter the age limit. I mean, even adults, you know, you can even feel a part of this journey that they're going on to battle the Rat King and all that fun stuff. The Immersive Nutcracker, a winter miracle, runs through December 31st at Denver's Lighthouse Immersive. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. There's a list of many more productions of The Nutcracker taking place in Colorado at CPR.org.
Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.